This is week five of this series talking about really the DNA of Shiloh Road and what makes Shiloh Road, Shiloh Road and such an incredible family to be a part of, something we're so, so thankful for. One of the things I think you notice and you see in our culture, maybe more than in the past, is there are more and more people that are walking away from church. Um, we, we hear statistics all the time, 50 to 60% of our teenagers are graduating from high school and deciding to walk away from the church. And in our country, we see statistics that continue to say that there are more and more people leaving the church. And I think one of the things that's happening within that context is there are more and more people that aren't just simply claiming to be Christian because that's what everyone else does. Because I think for so long growing up in this country, it was just synonymous. You're an American, you're a Christian. And there are more and more people that are simply just saying, you know what, you, they, they don't equate. And so they're just simply naming what's really always been true because even though they claim to be Christian, there wasn't really any connection to church. And so maybe things aren't quite as bad as we think they are now. But I think regardless, we also understand, and I think it's pretty obvious, especially through the world in the lens of social media, some of the most volatile conversations seem to happen around religion and around politics. It seems like those two conversations tend to set people off and make the conversations um, rather difficult and sometimes very harsh towards one another. And it makes it more difficult, I think, than ever before to simply um, talk to people about Jesus. And I think we, we see that in our culture with more and more churches that are shrinking. And I don't think the problem is always organizationally or anything like that vision, but it's simply as a church, we kind of forget that our purpose is to be out in the world, being a light to the world, and sharing Jesus with people. And I think there are two primary reasons we, we don't do that. One is fear that we're afraid, and, and part of us wants to protect the relationship, and so we're kind of not sure of how to bring it up because we don't know what that's going to set off, what kind of conversation is going to ensue. We don't know if we're prepared to handle it. We don't know what they're going to think or how they're going to react, and so one of them is fear. We're afraid sometimes to simply talk to people about Jesus, to invite them to join us. The other in our culture, I think, is busyness. Sometimes we get so busy that we rarely slow down and listen to people. And the, the thing is, there are people who are broken and hurting all around us. Every day you come in contact with people who are searching for something. And so fear and busyness tend to get in our way. But one of the things I've loved about this church from the very beginning is how consumed people are here with caring for people who are broken and hurting and those who are lost. I really do believe that's kind of in the DNA of Shiloh Road. And recently especially, I've been hearing story after story of people who are coming here to Shiloh who have been hurt and broken. Some who have been through a divorce or a loss of a job. Some who have family members that have made their life really difficult. Or some family members that have seemed to just kind of moved away and don't want to have anything 
to do with you or to do with this church. And when we find people in the midst of that brokenness, when they are hurting and they are vulnerable, there is a beautiful opportunity to point them to the one who heals our brokenness. There's a beautiful opportunity to invite them into this journey because what we confess, listen, if you're new here, what we confess, every single one of us, me, every one of our shepherds, is that we are broken people. That we are broken and imperfect people. But that we have been restored and made new by the blood of Jesus Christ that makes us whole. And we do not stand here because we've got it all together. Because just like you, we are on this journey with you. We are right alongside of you, and we are broken, and we are imperfect, and we're searching. One of the things that I think is, is so important to understand is God's concern for the people who are broken and hurting. In fact, I wonder at times if God's greater concern is not the people who are gathered here, but the people who are still out there. I wonder if God's greatest concern is not those who say, yes, I love and follow Jesus, but those who don't know the name of Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 15, there are three stories that occur back to back to back. And I want to kind of set the context for the way these stories are told. And he starts in Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. So understand that here in the center of this is Jesus, and there is kind of this inner circle right here around him that are tax collectors and sinners. And he goes on to say this, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and so there's this second circle surrounding them. There's the tax collectors and the sinners surrounding Jesus, and then there are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law surrounding the tax collectors and sinners, kind of this concentric circles moving outward. And he says the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So I want you to imagine this scene kind of unfolding where Jesus is standing here and you have these tax collectors and sinners, these outcasts standing here, right here, listening to Jesus, talking with him, having conversation, which was kind of frowned upon in this time. To have a, a prestigious rabbi talking to someone like this was unheard of. And then on the outside, you have the tax, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're not actually engaged in what's happening or listening to what Jesus is saying. What they're doing is they're muttering to each other. Can you believe that they're here? Can you believe that he's allowed them into the conversation? Can you believe that he hasn't sent them away? And so this is the scene that's unfolding. And you have to understand... That as this story is unfolding, there is a bigger story that is taking place in the midst of this story. You remember back to the 1990s, some of you I know don't, but to the 1990s, they came up with these things called stereograms. And stereograms were these repeated images over and over and over, little small images, and that you would stare at them, and if you stared long enough and hard enough, 
and you made your eyes glaze, and you looked away, and you looked back, because everyone has a different way to explain how to do it, then this new image would come into view. And I remember in high school seeing, and people would hold up these posters and say, just stare at it. Let your eyes glaze over, look away, and you're sitting here trying to like, wait, what am I supposed to be doing and seeing? And it was always one of those things that felt like a mean trick. Like there, there's nothing there. There's, there's really nothing there to see. Until about four or five years ago, when I was using that as an illustration, I decided I was going to put one up on the screen. And so the whole week, I'm sitting in my office, and it, like, I, I probably looked like I needed Pepto-Bismol, but trying to, <laughs> trying to see this image that everyone said was there. And I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I, and I finally saw it. And so I want you to, to focus really well on these stories. Because in the midst of these three stories, a fourth story emerges. And it emerges right on top of the others, almost as a background to the other three stories that Jesus is telling. Because this bigger story is a commentary, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the three stories that he's telling is a commentary on the bigger story. So be watching for this. And so he goes on to say this, verse three, or verse four, excuse me. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? How long does he go after it? Until he finds it. He, he goes after that sheep until he finds it. He goes on to say this. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. This is a celebration. This is good. He, he doesn't get to the point where he's like, you know what? I still have 99. It's okay. I'm just going to leave this one out there and go on my way. And he, no, he goes and he looks for it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. He goes on verse 7. says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. And, and understand, this I think belongs in quotes because Jesus is really trying to make a, a, a point here. He says, who do not need to repent. In, in other words, there aren't 99 other righteous people who do not need to repent. The problem is, they think there is no need for them because they are not like them. They are not like those people. And so you have Jesus at the center of the circle, surrounded by the tax collectors and the sinners, surrounded by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So he goes on to tell another story, and he says, Sir, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one of them. And a silver coin in this story is equal to about a day's wage. Think of it in our terms. You've lost a $100 bill. You had $1,000, and you've lost $100. you are not just going to simply say, well, you know what? $100 is no big deal. Some of you, it's not. I like to eat at Texas de Brazil, if, if that's you. Um, <laughs> Or suppose one of you has ten silver coins, loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search careful, carefully until she finds it? 
going on. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. And so remember, as he's telling these stories, you have the lost sheep and you have the lost coin. There's still another story that's kind of hiding in the background that they want us to be able to see. But what's so amazing is the dynamics of this story as it's unfolding. Because you have this inner circle, these tax collectors and sinners, gathering around Jesus, listening to him, consumed with his words, and excited to be there. Because the tax collectors were kind of outcasts. They were turned their back on on their people. They they were unheard of to, to be in the presence of a powerful rabbi. And I think they're excited to be there in Jesus' presence and to feel welcomed by someone. But then you have this other group of people, this outer circle, who is sitting here casting blame and pointing fingers and calling them out for what they have done. And they're the ones who Jesus is calling the 99 righteous who don't need to repent, right? They are the righteous that don't need to repent. And what always has amazed me about Jesus' teaching and his stories and his preaching is the people that he runs off and the people that he makes angry. Because we would assume that it would be the tax collectors and the sinners that would hear Jesus' words and say, well, I can't be here and leave. But they're not the ones who continue to do that. The ones who continue to to run off from Jesus' ones are the religious people. And it seems like he continues to say to them, you claim to be the people of God, act like the people of God. If you're going to claim to be my priest, then represent me well to the people. And they are the ones that get angry and run from Jesus' words, while the tax collectors and sinners, the ones we think would be condemned by him, can't get enough of his message. And I wonder at times, is our message that compelling? Does our message that we preach, that we share, do the same things, that have the same effect? Or do people hear our words? And run. Is this a place of welcome, of embrace? And what's amazing in it is Jesus doesn't hide the truth from them, He speaks it. But He speaks the truth with love and grace in a way that they are dying to hear it that they can't get enough of his words as he continues to encourage them and call them and invite them to leave death behind and find life. See, this lost sheep and a lost coin, their owners never come to a place where they think, you know what, I have plenty more. I won't worry about it. So this past year, my family and I took a trip to Disney. And on the third or fourth day of the trip, we were at the Magic Kingdom. And there were so many people, because we went over spring break. And so it was really crowded. And we're going from ride to ride because we had the fast passes. And so you kind of have to go from one side of the park to the other pretty quickly. And in our um, 
jet across the park at one point, um, we kind of lost one of our children. We have four, and Caleb kind of got lost for a minute. And we were walking, and then all of a sudden, Cammie and I are, are talking. We look up, and we're like, wait, 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 one, two, three. There's one missing. And we realized that Caleb wasn't with us. And so we took Gracie and Ryan and Kaylee, and we went over and said, okay, you're going to stay right here at this bench, and you're not going to move. And Cammie went this way, and I went this way. And we went looking, and both of us found park employees because that's what you're supposed to do. Because Disney does such a good job with lost children. And so we found a, an employee, and they, they go into their, their little spill, and, okay, well, let's remain calm. And, you know, there, there's a part of you that's trying to remain calm, but your child is missing in this massive park with thousands of people. And you want to find him. And so we're, we're kind of frantically starting to look, and it's been four or five minutes, and finally my wife calls me on my cell phone and says, we found him. And I walked over, and I met up with Cammie, and Cammie's holding him, and he was just distraught and devastated because for a six-year-old, that's pretty scary. He, he was lost. Now, I'll tell you, during this whole event, there was never a point, and there never would have been a point where, you know what, we got three. <laughs> if we take 75% home, that's passing. <laughs> no. We went looking for Caleb. And we were not going to stop looking for Caleb until we found him. Why? Because he's our son. We love him. And it was scary when we realized he wasn't there and that he was on his own. So remember this bigger story that's playing in the background. This whole time there's another story that's going on. And then he tells a third story here about a lost son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son went to his father and said, can I have the share of the estate? Which in basic terms was, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. Because for the younger son, he would have gotten about a third of the father's estates at the time of the father's death. While the older brother would have gotten two-thirds of the estate at the time of the father's death. And so this son, this younger son, his, his father gives him his stuff, and he goes on, says, to a distant country. And it says he blows everything. He squanders it on, on wild living. And then he spent everything, and he gets to this point where he's in need. And the son who is now out on his own has nothing left. And it says he goes and he hires himself out to a citizen of the country who sends him into the field to feed the pigs. And as he's working and feeding the pigs, he looks out and he says, man, I would love to have the food that the pigs are eating because I don't have anything. And the son devises this plan. 
He says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like a servant. Because even your servants have something good to eat. And so he got up and he went to his father. And I'm sure along the way, he's preparing and perfecting his speech of how he's going to say it and how well he's going to convince his father, this time I'm for real. This time I'm not going to mess up. And I'm going to work as hard as I can to prove to you that I am sorry. But the story takes this weird turn. It says when he was still a long way off, his father who I'm sure just day after day had been pacing the porch, sitting in the chair, looking out over the horizon, waiting for his son to appear, looking out the window to see maybe is today the day his son would come home. When he was still a long way off, it says his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion and he ran to the son and he threw his arms around him. And right then the son starts his prepared speech. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like a servant. But his father interrupts him. He doesn't let him continue. And he says, my son, I'm so glad you're home. And he says to one of the servants, Bring the best robe and put it on and Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine who was lost has come home. He is now found. And they began to celebrate. But then the story takes another turn. It says, meanwhile, there's an older brother who is out in the field working. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and he said, what's going on? He said, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fattened calf. And they're celebrating his return. And then the older brother, he becomes angry. And the father hears that this older brother is refusing to come in the house and celebrate the return of his younger brother. And he goes out to meet his son. And as he goes out to meet his son, he asks him what's wrong. And the son tells him, I have been slaving for you, serving you, working for you all these years. And you've never done anything to celebrate me being here. But when that son of yours comes home, who, by the way, blew all of your and my inheritance, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf. You never did anything like that for me. You never celebrated me and then the father has these most powerful and piercing words. He says, my son, you have always been with me. And everything I have is yours. But this brother of yours who is lost, he has come home. He was lost and now he is found. 
And the story unfolds in such a powerful way. Because what we've been told all our life is this is the story about the lost son. The lost son who goes and blows everything and then comes home. But what if the story is not really about one lost son, but two lost sons? One son who has wandered away and gotten lost and looking for a way to come home. And another son who is lost even though he never left home. Because the story is about the embrace of the father. Because the father in his grace and mercy and love still invites both sons to the feast. And the story ends in such an awful way in my, because you don't get the conclusion. What, what does the older son do? Does he go back to the field and work? Does he sit on the porch and pout? Does he go in and embrace the feast and celebrate the return of his brother? You don't get the answer, and it drives me crazy at times. Come on, Jesus, tell us how this ends. But the point is, the question ends with you. It's the question of how do you respond to the Father's invitation. And I think it brings up such a powerful and convicting question. Who would you refuse to eat with at the feast? Who if they were invited to come in and sit at the Father's table, would you cross your arms and refuse to enter the feast? See, and the reason I know that you have some people that come on that list is because I have people on that list. We call them those people. Those people who aren't like us. Like that son of yours. Any parents ever say that? You know what your son did? The brother on the outside looking in. That son of yours did this. It's his fault. And what the father ensures him is, son, you were always with me. And everything I have has always been yours. You've been here the whole time. I've never stopped loving you. I've never stopped appreciating you. See, and it's when you look at the three stories, and if you stare hard enough, you start to see a powerful image that emerges. Not just a story of two sons and his father, but a story of three sons and the father. See, because in this story here, you have the prodigal son. It's the bigger story. And in part of this is the father, of course. He's the centerpiece of the story. And then you have the younger brother and you have the older brother. 
but stare long enough, hard enough, at the three stories and something beautiful begins to emerge. There's a bigger story playing in the background. And it's full of a younger brother and an older brother, but not just one younger brother, lots and lots of younger brothers, the tax collectors and the sinners. And not just one older brother, but lots of older brothers, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then in the center of the story, you have not a father, but a son who perfectly reflects the father, who stands in the center of the story, inviting both the younger brothers and the older brothers to come to the feast because all are broken, but in spite of our brokenness, all are welcome here at the Father's table. And this beautiful invitation emerges that says regardless of where you have been, Regardless of what you have done, regardless of your hard-heartedness, regardless of your brokenness, you are invited to the Father to come to the table where all are welcome and all are made equal. Come to the feast. So, I want to talk for just a second about what this core value means to us of invest and invite. Because our role in this world, as Jesus has sent out his disciples, is to be investing in the life of people and inviting them to join us on the journey. And I want to do that with a few chairs real quickly. This first chair is pretty important because this first chair is about a new believer. It's someone who's just decided to begin this journey to follow Christ. And they need to be fed and they need to be walked with and they need to be discipled. They need people to walk alongside of them and hold their hand and help them to learn and help them to grow. And this chair is so important in our church because we have new life beginning. There's a second chair in this equation that's really important as well. This is the chair of the mature believer. Because the hope is, as you're growing up in Christ, that you're moving from this chair of being a new believer to being a mature believer. But this isn't a chair that you're supposed to get comfortable in. It's not a chair that was created so that you could just sit here and, and it, it, just see what's going on, but that this chair wouldn't be a place that you get really comfortable because this chair means you're going out on mission. But it, it's not just simply a place that you sit and get comfortable and complacent week after week. This chair means you're about the Father's business. And that like the third son in the story, you reflect the Father's grace and mercy and love in this world. But I want to talk about the third chair. Because this chair might be the most important chair. 
This is the empty chair. This is the chair of the person who does not know Jesus. This is the chair that we have to have plenty of open spaces for someone to come and explore and listen to the claims of Jesus and hear the story of Jesus so that they could possibly move to this new chair. But the ones who help to fill this chair are the ones of us who would call ourselves mature. Because we're inviting people to join us on this journey as we follow Jesus. Come and join. Because there is a place here for you who have been broken. There's a place here for you who have been hurt or abused or left out who've been burned by other churches. We want you to have a seat here. We want to have a place for you. And if we ever lose sight of this empty seat, then we lose sight of our mission as a church. And so I want to give you just real quickly a reminder. A reminder of what it looks like to invite broken people. Because the ones who were gathering around and listening to Jesus more than anyone else were those who were broken, those who were hurting, those who were searching. And Jesus never gave up on them. And I would say to you, if you're hurting, if you're broken, this seat is here for you. And we're glad you are here. And you can sit here and observe and check things out and listen to this story of Jesus as long as you need to. And our hope, I'm just going to tell you and be honest, our hope is that you're going to move from sitting in this seat that was empty into this seat as a new believer. And we want to help walk with you and disciple you and help you grow to a mature believer where you're inviting other people to come and join us in this seat. And so how do you do that? I want to kind of give you some defaults really, really quickly. I want you to listen for three knots in your conversations. Someone's talking to you and says, I'm not from here. Here's your response. Hey, you should come to my church. All right, so let's try this. I'm not from here. That sounded enthusiastic. <laughs> hey, I'm not from here. Yeah, yeah, hey, there we go. Things are not going well. Let's try it again. Things are not going well. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So, um, we just moved to town. We're, we're from Seattle, and we're not real sure. We don't really have any friends. We don't have any acquaintances. Welcome. <laughs> so, we just moved to town. We're from Seattle. We don't really know anyone. We don't have any acquaintances. Good for you. <laughs> We just moved here. We're from Seattle. We don't really know anyone or have any acquaintances. You need to come to my church. <gasps> wow. 
Can someone write it down for Dick Adams? <laughs> you know, we, we just started in this new school, and my kids are really, really struggling. And we haven't been through this before. We don't really know what we should do. You should come to my church. Wow. Isn't that easy? I've been hurt. I've been broken. I've been through things that no one here would ever understand. And I'm scared and I don't know what I should do. You should come to my school. Isn't that powerful? But it's so simple. Just an invitation. So as we end, I want you to close your eyes with me. I want you to imagine one person in your life that you know who does not know Jesus. I want you to picture them. And I want you to begin praying this year that God would give you open doors to share the story of Jesus with them or to invite them to come to our church because our church is a place that broken and hurting people are welcomed and embraced. Father, I pray that you would imprint on our minds someone, someone that we know that we come in contact with daily, someone that we've met before that does not know Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would help us to listen. Listen to your leading. As you're leading those conversations and you're opening doors for us to share the life-changing message that's brought us from death to life. And Father, to invite them. But Father, the invitation is not ours. It's never been ours. It's always the Father's invitation to come broken, wounded, abused, hurting, come because there is a seat for you at the table. And so, Father, may we carry this message into this world with the love and passion of Jesus. And, Father, may they see your love, your grace, and your mercy through our lives. Father, we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.